Let's make our way to Genesis chapter 4 as we continue our journey through the first book in your Bibles. There should be one located close to you in a seat pocket in front of you if you don't have one. We'll be in Genesis chapter 4. As we head towards the fourth chapter of Genesis, let me just remind you of where we were last week in chapter 3. What we saw was Adam and Eve placed by God in a position of success. Literally put in a place in the Hebrew that's called delightful. This is what the word Eden means. And so God put them in a position to remain sin-free, to continue to be in relationship with Him. And yet, in spite of this, what we see is the, the introduction of the serpent, the Nahash, the deceiver that came in there to the garden and deceived Eve. Now for Eve, she was deceived, but for Adam, he did so knowingly going against the Word of God. Adam apparently loved Burger King because he wanted it his way, right? And so, so Adam made a decision to do things his way, and what ensued is the, the fall of mankind. <laughs> and so here we sit today as fallen people based upon a decision that they made. And what we find is God then coming onto the scene to confront Adam and Eve to, to talk to them about what had just taken place in Genesis 3. And what you know is they didn't readily admit to it. Instead, they, they proceeded to do the, the blame game, the finger pointing. For Adam, he said, it's the woman you gave me. This is clearly your fault, God. You gave me this woman. She left me in this spot. She led me to this spot. And for Eve, she quickly pointed to the serpent, the snake. He deceived me. And so what we find is God, through His grace and His mercy, He took Adam and Eve and He removed them from the garden. Away from access to the tree of life where they could have remained for all of eternity in this sinful state. And so it was actually the mercy and the grace of God that led them out of the garden where He put them away from the place where they could have continued to harm themselves for all of eternity. Now all that, what we also found in the middle here of Genesis 3, verse 15, was this that I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of Satan and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the promise of the coming seed, the seed of the woman, I shared with you that Bible scholars call this the proto-evangelicum, the first presentation of the gospel message, the good news that existed in the seed of the woman, this beautiful promise that was given, this plan of salvation to bring us back into a right relationship with God. Now all that leads us to verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so Adam, we're told, knew Eve. Now it's important to understand this didn't mean like they were introduced. This wasn't a Adam, this is Eve, needed the how you doing? You know, not, not like that. This is uh, speaking, of course, of sexual intercourse. And so through this, Adam and Eve coming together, we find that she was with child and then she gave birth to child. And as this beautiful baby boy was presented, she looked upon him and she said, oh, I have acquired a man from the Lord. This proud mom moment where she brings forth her firstborn son. And no doubt thinking back to the promise that God gave them just a chapter before, she thought this must be it. This is the plan of salvation. Here he is. I've acquired a man. And then we arrive in verse 2. And then she bore again. And this time his brother Abel. Now for any of you in here as first-time parents, you know the joy and the pride that you have of bringing forth that firstborn. Right? That this... 
This is the one. This is the heir. And then a couple years later, what happens is, I'm pretty sure this child is the devil. I don't know what happened here, but this is not right. This thing is not good. Reality begins to set in, which is amazing because as you look here in verse 2, she names the firstborn son Cain. I have acquired a man of the Lord. And then by the time years pass, she has Abel and she names him vanity or empty. Like all the, all the promises I thought are now empty. Reality is set in. I see how things are really going to go through childbirth. And what we realize is that Eve had an expectation of her children that she probably shouldn't have layered upon them. Because the promise of God wasn't for the seed of the man, but the seed of the woman. Speaking of something supernatural, you all know that scientifically the woman has only an egg, not a seed. And so God is speaking to them of something outside of nature or supernatural. In fact, as we see years later in the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus would come onto the scene, Isaiah would prophesy this to actually an an evil king, a guy named Ahaz, but he gets this prophecy given to him that says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The promise of the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, the one that would bring salvation. And so we continue in the story. Verse 2, She bore again, and this time his brother Abel. And now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And so what we find is these two brothers now years later begin to settle into their occupations. They're now grown men and Cain settles into his occupation as a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer. And so as a farmer, Cain goes out into the field and takes the work of his hands and the grain and he brings it back to the Lord to present this offering to the Lord. And Abel, being a keeper of the sheep, a shepherd, he goes out and takes the firstborn of the flock and he brings it forth and provides it to the Lord as a sacrifice. And yet in the story, it's amazing when we read that God didn't honor the sacrifice of Cain. He didn't Uh, accept the offering that Cain gives of the work of his hands. And as we read this, you have to wonder in your mind, like, how is that fair? Like, how does Cain bring an offering forth and Abel brings one forth, and yet Cain's isn't accepted, but Abel's is. God, you see, he's unfair in this spot to have this expectation of Cain. Except when we look in Scripture just a little bit deeper. And we love the fact that Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture, because what's revealed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, gives us some additional insight into this story. Hebrews 11, verse 4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. I would encourage you to underline that phrase, by faith. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. And if you go with me to the left just a little bit, to Romans chapter 10, The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans here in verse 17 concerning faith. What he states here is this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How did Abel have any faith if he had not heard the Word of God? Which means that both of these brothers were given 
the word of God, perhaps from God himself or shared from Adam, their father, that this is what God's word says, that an animal has to be sacrificed, that blood has to be shed. And so what we find is in reality, Cain went against the word of God and did what was from the work of his own hands. It could have been that he thought this, that, that a sacrifice, it's just a bloody mess. I mean, it's bloodshed and it's, it's sad. It, it hurts me to do it. It turns my stomach. Which, by the way, if you read through the Old Testament and you see all the sacrifices and all the animals that have to give their life and it turns your stomach and it makes you a little sick, then I would tell you, good. That's the point. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to cost us something. It's supposed to make us a little sick because, by the way, our sin kills. Our sin murders. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. Death had to come so that we could be atoned for, so that we could be released. But for Cain, he begins to think in terms of religion. I can surely do this by the work of my hands. I can surely accomplish the same thing with the work of what I'm doing, the sweat of my brow. I'll present this to God and then I'll be accepted. And the reality is there is no work of our hands that is ever acceptable to God. Isaiah says that on our best day, our righteousness is as of filthy rags. And in the Hebrew, if you go into it, what you find is that's actually a used minstrel cloth. I realize that's graphic, but this is our best. This is what we do with our righteousness. And so Cain, desiring to present something from his own works, what he found out is he was woefully short. What the Word of God states in Leviticus chapter 17, I know you guys love Leviticus time. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. That the blood has to be shed to make atonement, to provide a covering. And what you know is all this points back to the ultimate bloodshed, the ultimate covering which lasts for all of eternity, that of Jesus. That it's His work on the cross by grace through faith that we can receive this covering for all of eternity and be accepted in right relationship with God. Now, for Cain, he's decided to go about this his own way. And the, the place he ends up here at the end of verse 5, Cain was angry and his countenance fell. His offering rejected his countenance. Literally, his demeanor, depression fell upon Cain. He was upset, depressed because of the spot he now finds himself. Now, does God leave him there? The answer is certainly not. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain's God's instructions to Cain were very simple, very basic. He's giving him a little coaching. He's coaching Cain up a little bit. Like, here you go, Cain. Here's what you need to know. If you do well, it's going to go rightly. If you pursue right doing or righteousness, it's going to go well. However, if you pursue your own desires, if you pursue what you think is right, the work of your hands, it's just going to leave you with sin literally devouring you. Sin is going to come upon you like a lion outside the door and it's going to eat you up. God's desire wasn't for Cain to be depressed, but for him to actually be joyful. 
realizing all that God had done, all that he had provided. And what we find is this actually connects to what we're studying in Philippians on Wednesday nights, that our joy shouldn't be rooted in our circumstances. That so often we try to connect our joy, our happiness together with what we're experiencing, what we're going through. And yet what you know about the truth and where we live and and how we exist is it never pans out. It never works out well. But what Paul shares with the Philippians from a spot where he's in prison writing them a letter, by the way, is that they should have chapter 2, verse 5, the mind of Christ. The secret to being joyful, even in the midst of your circumstances, is taking on the mind of Jesus. It's it's a decision that each of us can make. I'm going to view this through His lens and see what God is up to. And with the mind of Christ, here's some beautiful promises that we can have throughout Scripture. Isaiah chapter 61 says that we can take this this heavy garment that we wear, and we can exchange it for a garment of praise. He says there in verse 3, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that you may be called trees of righteousness. I mean, imagine that. If you've ever been in a spot of depression, it feels like that. It, It feels like a heavy weight, a blanket, a garment. I can't get out of my own way. But what God's Word says is you can take that and exchange it for a garment of joy and rejoicing and praise. Lord, even in the midst of this circumstance, I'm going to praise you. Even though I don't know how I'm going to mutter the words, I'm going to sing, great are you Lord in this spot. Continuing in Thessalonica, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to a group of people who are being persecuted from the outside, this is what he recommends to them. He says, rejoice always, verse 16. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul's recommendation is simple. Rejoice in the spot that you're in. Pray to the God of the universe who can change your circumstance. He can for sure change your mind, taking on the mind of Christ. And then be thankful. Not thankful for everything, by the way. He says, in everything, give thanks. Because there's some things, the truth is, we just can't be thankful for. Like, I don't know how I can be thankful for this thing, And yet in it, as I take on the mind of Christ, I can be thankful in the midst of this. I know I have a God who saves and a God who fights for me and a God who stands up for me. And one last place in Scripture I'll go. Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, verse 8, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So often what happens is we focus on the one quarter or the one third of the things in our life that are not going right, and we completely miss the three quarters or the two thirds of the things that are. What Paul says is meditate on those things that are actually going well and stand back and be amazed at what God will do in your heart and in your minds. Now in this scene where Cain is at, he is now letting the root of bitterness begin to eat him up. He is allowing this root to take place between him and his brother. Which leads me to this question. Do you know how long Cain has despised his brother? As long as he was able. Look, this is a heavy story, okay? You gotta you gotta pick them where you can get it. Just take what you can get. <laughs> All right. All that leads us to verse nine. Verse eight, excuse me. 
Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Verse 9, And the Lord said to him, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now look at the progression of this story as the root of bitterness takes hold of Cain's heart. This guy who would not go and sacrifice an animal for his own sins now goes out and kills his own brother. It's amazing what sin can do in our life. What bitterness can do when it takes root. And he he cries out to God, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, what do I care? What's he to me? And you know the root of bitterness is beginning to take place when this is what you say, Lord, don't you know they hurt me? Don't you know they're dead to me? I don't care about them. And what Jude verse 11 says is this is the way of Cain when it begins to take hold. This root of bitterness not only affects us, but it can affect generations to come. And God's going to cover that here in the next few verses. Verse 10, And he, God, said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God is approaching Cain, much like he did Adam and Eve last week, not looking for information. But so often we think God is inquiring here because he didn't know what happened. He knew very well what had taken place. He's not looking for information. He's not surprised, by the way, at anything that we will do, have done, or continue to do. It's not a shock to God at any point in time. What he is looking for is confession. And confession, this word, it simply means to repeat back to God what he already knows. That when we as believers confess something to Him, we're not actually asking for forgiveness any longer. I hope you understand that. That Jesus, by the work on the cross, what He said and made it very clear was to telestai, paid in full. The debt has been paid in the past, in the present, in the future. He's taken care of, blotted out my sins. So I've already been forgiven. You've already been forgiven. But when we confess Rather than forgiveness, what we're actually doing is we're releasing the shackles of shame and fear and regret that the enemy wants to keep on us like a blanket of heaviness, like a root of bitterness that grows up in our hearts. And so as we read through this verse, and he, God, said, what have you done, your brother's blood? And in the margins of some of your Bibles, there'll be an asterisk, and that word blood will actually be plural. It'll be bloods. That for the Hebrew people, what they believed is if you murder, if you take a life, if you kill someone, you don't simply kill them, but you actually kill children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. You actually terminate an entire family tree. There are bloods that are, effect- that are affected. And so what we find is this root of bitterness, it can take hold and not only affect us and our lives, but the lives of people who will follow after us. Now, conversely, this Hebrew idea of taking a life and it affecting generations, what I love is that they have this other view of saving a life. That if you save a life, if you come alongside and save a life, you're not just saving a life, you're also saving generations to come. Children and grandchildren have an opportunity at life as we step into that spot, which is why if you go with us, shameless plug for going to Israel, if you go with us here in a few months, we'll go to a place called Yad Vashem. It's the Holocaust Museum there in Jerusalem, and it overlooks the city. It's this beautiful place, but on the outside, there's a garden you can walk through. And as you walk through the garden, there are trees planted 
not for Jews, but actually for Gentiles who through the Holocaust stepped up and saved the life of entire generations of Jewish people. And so this beautiful garden of righteousness for the Gentiles that have been planted as people put their life on the line to step in and save another. And so you have this beautiful contrast that takes place on bitterness versus forgiveness. Now for many, as you hear this, you're you're thinking, look, here's the reality. I've never killed anybody. Uh, I'm not a murderer, so I don't know how this applies. Well, uh, maybe you've thought about it from time to time, maybe the person you live with. But outside of that, I've never actually done it, so how does this apply to me? I'm so glad you asked. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount says this, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or literally airhead, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that a brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift and agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Bitterness and unforgiveness is a prison for the person who remains bitter and will not forgive. What Jesus is clearly communicating is that holding on to, being bitter because I've been wronged, I've been cheated, I've been taken advantage of, hanging on to that not only has an effect on you and the relationship, but actually for generations to come. And there are families that are affected for whole generations, groups of people that will never know one another because of the lasting effect of the root of bitterness. Now, what we find is the blood of Abel cried out for justice. This is what God is saying. That Abel's blood spilled out on the ground is crying out now for justice in this spot. And yet Hebrews gives us a little bit of insight into one who is greater than Abel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, into the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Christ is so much better than the blood of Abel. Because as the blood of Jesus was spilled out on the ground, he didn't call or cry out for justice. What did Jesus say? But Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The blood of Christ that you and I are all responsible for, by the way. We are all responsible for Jesus and the crucifixion. I did that. And yet his blood spilled out on the ground says, Father, forgive. And so we are encouraged in this spot as the blood of Christ cries out more than able to forgive one another. Now back to verse 11. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And so notice with me, Cain doesn't ask for forgiveness or mercy. What he cries out is, this punishment is too much for me. 
Now he lays himself out there as the victim. I'm being victimized somehow after he's just killed his brother. And so it's, it's Cain intentionally choosing to be mad rather than just asking God for mercy. Be merciful upon me, Lord, a sinner. Instead, he's just angry about it. And it continues a downward spiral for him and his family. He says in verse 14, Surely you have driven me out of this uh, excuse me, surely you have driven me out of this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. What Cain doesn't say is, God, you're hiding from me. He's saying, God, I'm going to now go hide from you. I'm going to turn my face and run away from you as a result of this. And then he cries out, anyone that finds me is going to try to take vengeance upon me and kill me. And so look at what the Lord says in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And so the Lord, in response to this act, in response to Cain saying, I'm turning away from you, God, what the Lord actually gives to him is mercy. He gives him mercy and grace even though he did not ask for it. Protecting him in this spot. Amazing grace of our Father. Verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And so instead of turning to God, he nods off, right? He goes off to Nod, which literally means wandering. He goes out into the wilderness, wandering away from God, desiring to flee from the presence of God, which is ludicrous to even consider. In fact, King David, when he's thinking about the very presence of God, this is what he says in Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. That there is no escaping the presence of God. And yet Cain is fleeing from this. And we're going to see the results upon his entire family. Here in verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. And so this beginning here of verse 17 brings up a question I wish as a pastor I didn't get nearly as often as what I do. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, obviously, Adam and Eve had more children. We're going to read that they have lots of kids. So the truth is, Cain picked out one of his sisters or one of his nieces. And while we look at that and we kind of turn our nose up at it, remember, their bloodline was pure. It wasn't an issue to have your sister or your niece as a wife. It was a much purer bloodline. And if you're still appalled by that, go on one of these websites of some ancestry thing, and you're going to find all y'all are cousins. Whether you like it or not, all of you are related and connected somehow, some way. And so what we find is that Cain took a family member as his wife, and yet what I wish people asked wasn't this question. What I really wish they would ask is the same question the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul when the gates of the prison had flung open and Paul could have ran away, and yet he didn't. What Acts chapter 16, verse 30 says, he asked of the Apostle Paul, how can I be saved? How can I come to know Jesus? That's the question I wish I would get asked more than this. But all that, I digress. Continuing in verse 17. And so she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. 
And so now we see Cain beginning to have a family, but instead of naming this city that he builds, trying to build his own empire after God, after Yahweh, instead he names it after his son. He begins to build an empire for himself. He's staking his claim on the land, and this is what I'm doing, turning away from God. And now we're going to see things digress from here. Remembering that each name in Hebrew has a meaning. There's a meaning, and you get an insight into the family where they're at based upon these names. And so you continue, Enoch was born Irad. And so we go from Cain, who's called acquired of God, down to Enoch, now down to Irad. And his name literally means fugitive or wild donkey. And for you old King James fans, that's wild ass. We've now gone from uh, acquired of from God to now wild ass. This is how the family is going. It only gets better from here. Uh, to Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad begot Mahujael. Mahujael, it, it literally means to blot out that Yah is El. The name means to blot out that Yah, Yahweh, is God. If that wasn't bad enough, it continues. Mahujael begot Methushael, which means they are dead who are of El. I want everyone who is of God to be dead. Now all that in just a few generations from Cain. The root of bitterness taking effect. Going from Cain who was so promised of, so beautiful, he was acquired of by God down to a wild ass, then down to blotting out the name of God to then all those of God should be dead. And that leaves them in this spot where Methushael begot Lamech which means poor and lowly. What I wanted to share with you about this is that when we attempt to remove God from our family, from our society, from our workplace, from our schools, wherever we decide to remove God, it leaves us always in the same spot. Poor and lowly. And this is the place that Lamech is now in and the family of Cain are now in. Verse 19 Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah. And we see the first time that polygamy is mentioned in Scripture. Now, another question I get is, uh, was polygamy wrong? Because we see it throughout the Old Testament. With uh, Right here, the first mention with Lamech, and then even Abraham, the father of the faith, with with multiple wives, or uh, Jacob with multiple wives, or on down to King David, or even King Solomon and his thousand wives. And what I would share with you is, uh, find for me one time that it went really well. Find for me one time in Scripture where this actually worked out. It would be the first if you find it. That just because men had decided in their own corruption to take on multiple wives doesn't mean this is God's idea. It's not God's approval, but who is He going to use if not fallen man to work out His purposes? And so now what we see is that Lamech takes on these two wives. Ada he calls an ornament, and Zillah, her name means shabby. You've got these two wives. You've got ornament and shabby now as your wives which lines up with exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, which says that you cannot take two masters, for you will love one and you will despise the other. And that's the reality for us. That when we try to take on two masters, whether it be in the workplace or in the bedroom, that one will be an ornament, one will be loved, and the other one will be shabby. And so 
We continue. Verse 20. And Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the harp and the flute. And so children have now gone from being named after God to now being named after what they do, what their occupation was. Uh, Jabal was the father of the nomads. Uh, Cattle is what his name means, tent dwellers. And Jubal was the father of musicians. And so they're now able to play music not solely for worship, but also playing it as a profession. So they begin to be named after their occupation rather than after God. Now continuing in verse 22. And as Zillah, she also bore Tubalcane an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Neymah. And so Tubalcane was a crafter or a, a wetter. The idea is actually of weaponry. So Tubalcane was a crafter of weaponry, articles to be used to take people's lives. Verse 23, Then Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a younger man for hurting me. The idea is Lamech took another man's life for hurting his feelings because he was offended by that man. And so the bitterness has gone from Cain taking his brother's life all the way down to Lamech who's taking a life just because someone offended him. Verse 24 if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And so he now gives this proclamation, but that phrase, seventy-sevenfold, it, it literally means seven times seventy, which might line up to something else you'd see in Scripture if you go with me to Matthew chapter 18. Here, Jesus is being approached by the Apostle Peter. And Peter comes to him with a question. Verse 21, Peter said to him... In, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? I mean, no doubt as Peter's saying this, he's thinking, I'm doing pretty good, Lord. I mean, look at how spiritual I am. How often should I forgive, Lord? Even up to seven times when I'm hurt by my brother? Look how forgiving I am. And Jesus responds to him in verse 22. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 490 times, Peter, if you want to put a number on it. Now, important to note, Jesus wasn't putting a number on our forgiveness. But what he knows is if you try to keep track up to 490, uh, you all can't keep that good a track. You're going to forget. That's the idea. And so the encouragement here from the Lord, the way of Christ, is that forgiveness should take a much higher precedence than vengeance. That the way of Jesus is forgiving the way of Cain is, I'm going to get what's owed to me. Seventy times seven, I'm going to have my revenge. Now, as if it wasn't bad enough, it looks like all is lost. We arrive here at the end of our Scripture today, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. His name Seth means literally appointed whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord, or literally men began to be called by the name of the Lord. And here you have this 
beautiful promise when everything looks dark. In, in the days of Noah, remember, we're going to get to that story. This is the days of Noah where all light seemed to be completely out, and yet what does God do? But he leaves a remnant. I want you to understand that God always leaves a remnant. There's always a group that are clinging to his praise and clinging to his promises. There's always a remnant of the Lord, even in the darkest of times. And what we see here is of the remnant. It's not that they didn't have occupations. It's that their name wasn't associated with their occupation. Instead, they were called by the name of the Lord. They were called as believers. They were called as you and I are called to be labeled as what we believe. They were, they were Christians, if you want to take it that far. To be a Christian means to be like a little Christ, to be examples of Him, to be imitators of Him. This is who we're called to be beyond just being teachers and doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs. It's wonderful to have that as a career, to have that as an occupation, but please know that's not your identification as a follower of Jesus. It's not who you are. Who you are, how you identify is as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus. This is my identity, to be called by the name of the Lord. And the hope for this next generation was all rooted and grounded in the remnant that was called by the name of the Lord. That who they were was no longer going to define them. That they were defined by whose they were. Belonging to the King. And so, Father, we thank You. And we praise You out of a dark chapter, Lord, that there is a remnant. Thank You for the line of Seth. Those who are appointed by God to be seeds from God. To be believers. Called by Your name. Lord, thank You that there are many here in this room called by Your beautiful name. Lord, help us as we go, as you examine our hearts to live like that. For the Apostle Paul to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, to be a Christ imitator. That's a scary title to put down. And yet this is how you want us to be known, that our lives would actually be shown by, by our behaviors, how we behave, what, what we truly believe plays out in, in how we act. And so, Lord, help us to live like that. Help us to not be a people that let the root of bitterness affect not only us, but then generations to come. But say, today is the day where that stops, where forgiveness takes place. Seventy times seven, if necessary, forgiveness takes place. Thank you that we have this beautiful opportunity to go the way of Christ and forego the way of Cain. I pray all this in Jesus' name.